Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is one of America's leading experts on constitutional law and national security, the award-winning author and dedicated public servant, Professor Philip Bobbitt. I first met Philip at Ditchley Park, a beautiful country house in Oxfordshire that hosts discussions between the international great and the good. And it was the perfect setting to encounter someone like Philip. He's learned, worldly, courtly, and to top it all off, the nephew of Lyndon Baines Johnson. Born in Temple, Texas, Philip studied philosophy at Princeton and law at Yale before completing a doctorate in history at Oxford. He has served extensively in government, working in seven administrations, both Democratic and Republican. Since 2007, he has been the Herbert Wexler Professor of Federal Jurisprudence at Columbia University Law School. Thank you, Philip Bobbitt, for joining me today from Austin, Texas, for the Director's Chair. It's a great pleasure to be here, Michael. Lovely to see you again. Let me begin by asking you about your family, Philip. Your mother, Rebecca, was LBJ's eldest sister. Tell me about that connection and your childhood in Texas. Well, my mother uh, was the second of five children of my grandparents. My grandfather, Sam Johnson, was a rancher. He was a member of the legislature. He was the author of the first Texas Blue Sky Law, which some of your lawyers in the audience will know is not about the environment. It's about securities regulation. And his wife... My grandmother, Rebecca Johnson, was the daughter of the Secretary of State who had laid the cornerstone of the Texas Capitol, also a member of the legislature. Her grandfather had been president of Baylor University. So these were all people with deep Texas roots. My uncle, President Johnson, my mother, and their three siblings all went to a teacher's college in San Marcos. My grandfather moved the whole family to San Marcos and put them all through college there. And then they gravitated to Washington. Uncle Lyndon went to uh, first to work in the Congress as an aide, then he ran for Congress. And of course, he ran for the Senate uh, and was majority leader when he ran for the vice presidency. And my mother followed him and worked in the Library of Congress. And I think she would have liked to have stayed on the East Coast, but she met a young man from Texas, which was not in her plan, I think who was also working at the library, working his way through college at George Washington University. And they eloped to Mexico, came back to live in Austin, and I was their only child. And what were your impressions of Uncle Lyndon when you were growing up? Did you see a lot of him as a child? We saw a lot of them at uh, holidays. We'd go out to the ranch for Christmas and Easter. We'd spend the summers out at the ranch. I had a horse there. My impression of him, I think, was that he was um, – sort of a force of nature. He's very formidable. He's quite tall. As I grew older, we had uh, conflicts because he was a very generous person and he always wanted to do something for other people. And he always wanted to do something for me. And I was a very uh, rebellious child and I thought it was uh, improper of me to accept even very modest gifts from him. We had a terrible fight one Christmas when he was playing Santa Claus, and I refused to take a $10 bill. <laughs> but he was a very a genuine person, and he was a very good to me. 
but that's more obvious in retrospect than at the time when I was trying to assert my mm. uh, adolescent will. Well, when you were 15, President Kennedy was assassinated and your uncle became president of the United States. How did you find out about that and how did that change your life? Well, I was uh, in high school, in public school here in Austin, Texas. I was a senior my last year in school. And also in my class was a young man, a contemporary of mine named John Conley, who was the son of the governor of Texas at the time. Some Texas state troopers came to our school and pulled the two of us out and took us to an auditorium where we were sequestered. And we had no idea how badly anyone had been injured. We didn't know that the president uh, was dying. We knew that Governor Connolly had been shot and was very severely injured. We didn't know if the vice president, uh, Johnson, had been hit because we were just isolated in this room off of an auditorium. And we were both very concerned. And then the principal came on and he made a statement to the entire school that everyone's going to be fine, including the president. And uh, John and I knew this was terrible news. <laughs> we, we were very skeptical about this. And unfortunately, that was the, that was the case. The main change in, in my life was that I then went to live for a summer in the White House that, that following summer. But I had the impression at the time that we were going to be in safe hands. Like every young person I knew, I simply adored President Kennedy. He was the hero of my generation. I met him a couple of times in the campaign, and he was everything he seemed. He was handsome, he was witty, he was uh, graceful, and he just was our beau ideal. So we were all, as a generation, shattered when he was murdered. But I had the sense, partly because I was so devoted to him, but partly because I just knew him, that uh, President Johnson would be a very steady hand. And that uh, as distressed as we were, the country was in safe hands. You mentioned that you spent the summer of 1964 living in and working in the White House. That coincided with important events in Southeast Asia. Tell us about that summer, Philip. Well, it wasn't quite a summer, just as you say. Uh, there was the Gulf of Tonkin uh, incidents, the killings in Mississippi, the campaign for the presidency, the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City, and I was just uh, the most uh, trivial uh, sort of fly on the wall. I was just kind of a, uh, an intern in the office of Walter Jenkins, who was President Johnson's chief aide in the West Wing. Uh, but then I would see the president uh, for breakfast in the morning, and uh, he was around, but he was quite uh, preoccupied. Uh, I don't think he ever <laughs> solicited my advice or anything, and a good thing it was, too. So I just was really more a witness than anything else, and at least as preoccupied with the girls and other matters like that than the great things that were going on around me. You've said of LBJ that he was a lovely man. History will judge him better than his present reputation. Tell us just a bit more about those two judgments of yours. Well, I've never... Uh, worried about President Johnson's star. As you mentioned, uh, my doctorate's in history. It is quite common to see the reputation of someone like Harry Truman arise and the reputation of someone like President Kennedy, whom I adored, sink a bit. 
as historians gain more perspective. The difference, I think, with President Johnson is the trauma that attended the assassination. And that, as much as any of his policies, including Vietnam, diminished his standing in the world. I said to uh, a friend of mine describing that interregnum uh, that my generation said to President Johnson, you're not my father. My father was a handsome prince. and My father's coming back someday and he's going to rescue me. And you're a mean old man. And I think until my generation dies off, President Johnson won't get his due. But I've never been in the slightest concerned about what that due will be. He was the most remarkable president since uh, Roosevelt. He is in a pantheon with less than a half dozen presidents, of whom that can be said. And he transformed American life through law. And law is maybe the only enduring way that political society can be changed. It wasn't the speeches. It wasn't the initiatives of policy. It was legislation that changed the face of America. And by that, I mean that literally, because uh, his immigration bill, 1965, which changed the formula for admission to immigrants from one that had replicated basically uh, European formula to one that opened up the United States to the world, simply changed the literal face of America. And that is number 10 or 12 of his accomplishments. I think he's quite slighted in foreign policy among the people that you and I hang out with, because the challenge to American participation in NATO reached its peak, at least until uh, President Trump, uh, reached its peak with Charles de Gaulle's efforts to drive the Americans out and to fracture the Atlantic Alliance. And uh, Johnson handled it simply masterfully. And I very rarely see this uh, written about. Johnson was also the a man who behind the scenes pushed for the space program, as he had done in the Senate, and got President Kennedy to promise this uh, expedition to the moon. He uh, overruled all of his advisors about the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, it was a Lincoln-esque moment. You remember the story about Lincoln asking for a vote in the cabinet, and all of his cabinet votes one way, and he raises his hands and he says, the eyes have it. <laughs> President Johnson, Secretary of Defense, State, his National Security Advisor, all opposed the NPT. Uh, he simply overruled them. And I think most people in our field in international security would say that it's a cornerstone of arms control. And I think, but for the invasion of Czechoslovakia, he would have uh, gotten the first assault agreement, which subsequently President Nixon did. So even in foreign policy, forgetting civil rights, voting rights, fair housing, national aid to education, putting all those things aside, in the agenda that is overlooked, he would rank as one of the greatest of our presidents. But that won't happen while uh, my generation's around. All right, Philip, let me ask you about presidents since LBJ. You work for a number of them. Can you give us portraits of some of the presidents you served who was the most impressive? Who was the most likable? I would say that they were very, very different people. If you put them in a room together, you'd say, what in the world do these people have in common? What they largely had in common, with rare exception, uh, was their devotion to the public welfare. 
George W. Bush was not someone I voted for. I, I, I thought uh, the vice president, uh, Al Gore, would have made a more successful president. But I never doubted that George W. Bush was a very patriotic person. And I think they all worked hard. I worked for President Carter. I, I thought he was simply a lovely, a lovely man and someone who, like the others, was quite conscience-driven. He was perfectly prepared to sacrifice the prospects for his reelection if he thought that was where the interests of the country lay. There's a, a story, this isn't about his time in office, but I had dinner with President Ford here in Austin, where I am now, many years ago, long after he was out of office. And before the dinner, he spoke to a group and then took questions. And one of the questions, which he must have had a thousand times, was, do you regret pardoning President Nixon? Because the analysts all say, this cost you the election to President Carter. And Ford said, well, you know, in a close election, everything cost you the election. Should I have gone to this state more often? Should I have had more advertising in that state? If it's that close, then anything could be the fatal mistake. And then he said, but no, I've, I've, I've reflected on this many times. I've never wavered in my decision. It's the right thing for the country. It was very unpopular. But it got us, it allowed us to put Watergate behind us and to move on. And then he said, and don't forget, I lost to a good man. And that struck me as uh, something uh, so noble, so decent. Uh, it's a rare politician who <laughs> will say that the person who defeated him was the right man for the office. But I found him to be a, a, a just a fine a human being, even though I often disagreed with his policies. President Clinton is simply a, just a remarkable uh, human being. Like you, he was a Rhodes Scholar. I went in a car with him once to give a speech at the NSC where I was working and prepared the speech for a long time, many drafts, got the car with him, hand him the speech, uh, makes a few notes in pencil, flips through the pages. We get out of the car, we go in, he goes right to the lectern, puts the speech to one side, and in about 25 minutes, delivers all of the important points, but in a much more direct and uh, much more digestible way. He has simply mastered it. I, I saw him once go to a, a party and recite the entire first page of a novel whose author the party was honoring. He just, <laughs> he's just an astonishing uh, figure in that way. Great charm, uh, bright as a dollar. And I suppose the president, uh, uh, and especially uh, sad about, uh, is the one who wasn't elected. I thought Hillary Clinton would have made a superb president. She was uh, traduced in the press for years as a kind of harridan and petty and small-minded, harsh, vindictive. None of None of that is true. But you know, in politics, it's very hard to shake an image. And I suppose I'd end my answer to your question by saying that the presence that I knew or that I worked for didn't always match their public image, mm. positive or negative, but that like Mrs. Clinton, they were all uh, conscientious and very patriotic in a totally unironic, unfancy way. You mentioned George W. Bush. So let me fast forward to his administration. 
In 2002, you published your award-winning book, The Shield of Achilles, in which you argued that the 20th century is best understood as a long war over different types of constitutional orders. And of course, during the Iraq war, your book was leaned on quite heavily by several of the allied leaders, including President George W. Bush and in fact, the Australian Prime Minister of the day, John Howard. Let me ask you, what are the dangers for a scholar in getting too close to power? The dangers go both ways. The dangers for the academic and the intellectual are that you become uh, corrupted. You write things that you think will win favor of your friends in politics. If you want to have someone in power call you up and say what a fine job you're doing, just write something. <laughs> write an op-ed piece saying how brilliant they are. And the uh, government official will somehow find time to drop mm. you a note or give you a call. And, and I'm not a, the sort of person who likes to offend people anyway. So I think you have to worry about that, that you're trimming your sails or you're mm -hmm. maybe you're unconsciously seeing things from that person's point of view and not from a more detached point of view. The flip side of that is if you are in government, you are inclined to, to overlook the unpredictability and the, uh, the patternless nature of the things that are coming your way. You run the risk of enforcing on events those intellectual constructs, those historical examples that you brought into office. Mm -hmm. And the one thing we know about uh, history is that it repeats itself in confounding ways, in ways that only appear cyclical with some distance and are never simply copies of some event that has gone before. So I'd say there are dangers on both sides of the equation. In the two decades since you published that book, and especially in the last decade, we've seen the head-snapping rise of China, a superpower run by a Leninist political party. How does the rise of China affect your thinking about the themes in Shield of Achilles? And how do you think US-China competition will play out in coming decades? Well, the Shield of Achilles was an effort to show the relationship between the constitutional order of states and developments in strategy. The argument was that, contrary to what many people say, we do not have the same constitutional order uh, in the modern state from 1648 onwards. In fact, the modern state begins a century before, and it has gone through several fundamental changes in the constitutional order. Uh, second, that this relationship isn't a uh, linear trajectory, but it's a, a two-way flow. Sometimes changes in the constitutional order bring about a change in warfare, as it did with the Civil War in America, German uh, unification uh, in Europe in the 1870s. These changes in the constitutional order to a new form, the industrial nation state, brought forth total warfare, new kinds of warfare. But it also works the other way. Sometimes the development of mobile artillery in the late 15th and early 16th century profoundly changed the constitutional order and pushed us from feudalism into the modern state. So it's more a field relation, if you remember your physics, uh, and less a single trajectory. Now, that was my basic argument in the Shield of Achilles. So at the end of the book, I look forward and I say, all right, what's the next constitutional order going to look like? And I speculated as to the forms it would take because the industrial nation state came in three flavors, uh, fascist, communist, and parliamentarian. And it was not obvious for many decades 
which of those forms would be the legitimate uh, heir and would vanquish the others. And in my speculation about the forms of what I call the market state that I think is our, is our future, I described uh, managerial market states like the European Union, uh, these entrepreneurial market states like the United States, and mercantile market states like China. And I argued that just as with its predecessor, the constitutional order of the industrial nation state, informational market states would come in these different forms and that the competition between the United States and China would be over which of these uh, two forms of the market state would be most strategically dynamic. And I think that that is the nature of the competition. I mean, I think the efforts of the Obama administration to try to engage China in a positive way with rational, positive incentives to bring it into the kind of relationship we have with the European Union, which is, I, I believe, a constructive one, had to be made. I think the president was right to try that. It's a tragedy for the world that they didn't pan out, but they didn't. And I think he would say, look, we had to try, but that it did not succeed. All right, let me ask you about the coronavirus pandemic, if I may, Philip. Obviously, that's had implications for the relationship between the states and its citizens. Uh, Here in Australia, for example, as an extreme example, it's very hard for me as an Australian to leave the country or to return to the country because of international travel restrictions. But we also see all sorts of other restrictions, including masks and lockdowns and so on. Do you think this has changed fundamentally the relationship between citizens and states? And also, what will the long-lasting relationships of the pandemic be for the international order? Do you think that they will change the course of globalization, the sort of inward tilt we've seen that states take during the pandemic will last, or will we overcome that? I can't say. It could go either way. After The Shield of Achilles was published, I did uh, another book called Terror and Consent. Mm. And I argued for the very unpopular position that you can have wars on terror, and indeed that the wars of the future would be wars over terror. And I said there were three arenas of these wars. One would be the uh, struggle against the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, including biologicals. One would be the continuation of state-to-state conflict uh, and an effort to suppress global networked terror. But the third arena would be those civilian catastrophes, whether or not man-made, that would paralyze publics and cripple democracies because they put the citizens in such fear. And in that book, uh, which is, I think, 2008, Mm -hmm. I discuss pandemics. And I said that we should be stockpiling laws the way we stockpile vaccines uh, right away, because it was inevitable that we would have these pandemics, that they would spread with a much greater uh, ferocity uh, and rapidity than they had before because of the nature of modern transport and travel, and that their potential to derail states by terrorizing populations was limitless if states didn't learn to uh, protect themselves, and didn't learn to cooperate globally. I wrote that the public health of the United States was no greater 
than that of the weakest public health system in the world. Because sooner or later, diseases that hitherto burned out in tiny villages would find their way into capitals and into airports that spread them around the world with uh, great uh, rapacity. So I'd say the jury is out on whether or not states will learn to cooperate or whether they will uh, hunker down and try to adopt uh, mercantile views. If they do, I don't think in the long run they will win the confidence of their people. In the short run, of course, it'll make people feel as though they're putting themselves first and, and that this is the way to survive. But I think that's a failure of leadership and imagination. Speaking about leadership and imagination, what did America's unimpressive response to the virus reveal to you about your own country? I suppose it goes back a bit to uh, your very first uh, set of questions about the occupants of the White House. Mm. The constitutional system I have spent my life teaching to law students can overcome a poorly educated uh, presidents and uh, alcoholic presidents, but it gives an enormous amount of discretion that can be used to the detriment of the country to irresponsible presidents. We, I believe, uh, know that uh, President Trump, who's no fool, uh, was informed early on about the devastating nature of the virus. But in choosing to give it a positive spin and hope for the best, he did something so, so reckless that many of my colleagues in constitutional law now are talking about ways to chain the presidency down and to confine the discretion of the executive. I'm very dubious about, about that. In the first place, it chains a president down who really ought to be acting with dispatch and imagination and invention. And in the second place, I doubt that it really would greatly confine someone who's prepared to entrust the lives of 600,000 people to his political fortunes. Philip, when I got to know you in the noughties, you split your work between scholarship and government, and you split your life between your house in Austin, Texas, from which you're joining us today, your New York City apartment overlooking the East River, and a beautiful set of rooms off Piccadilly in London. And it struck me at the time that this was a pretty fabulous existence, Philip. And now as an Australian who's largely prevented from leaving my country, it sounds like another universe completely. How were you so clever to set up your life in this way? Well, like all the great things that have happened to me in life, they were the result of just simply a dumb luck and the extraordinary kindness and generosity of friends of mine, family and people I've worked with over the years. I'd be the first person to want to say that it was all my clever doing, but uh, the truth simply is just the opposite. It, I was just uh, astonishingly lucky. Having said that, I thought, uh, just as you did, this was a pretty good life. I was a pretty happy fellow. And in the last uh, 20 months or whatever it is, being confined to my house in Austin, unable to go to New York or London, uh, I found the happiest uh, years of my life. Mm. We have these four small children, and I didn't realize quite how little I saw of them in New York. I took them to school every morning. I picked them up every afternoon. We had dinner every night or most nights, put them to bed. But here in Austin, where they're doing distance learning, where they're confined to the house and the grounds, uh, it's 
24-7 children. Mm. And it has brought me a, a joy that uh, hopping between these beautiful cities doesn't compare to. So you're not going to return to this sort of seasonal life when the pandemic is behind us? Well, as a matter of fact, right now we're debating whether to go back to New York in September. And I think that uh, uh, my wife, who has a majority share in the family and votes uh, the greatest uh, stock uh, holdings, is in favor of staying here in Austin. And she's a real city girl, so this is quite a departure from her background. So I think we probably will stay here uh, at least another year. I've met some of your kids, Philip, and they're they're very beautiful. So I, I can understand that. In fact, we've heard some of them, I think, in the background during this podcast. So I can understand that instinct. Let me finish by congratulating you on recently receiving an honorary knighthood from the Queen. I saw you quoted recently that your kids have a different title for you, which is Hey You. Yeah, that's right. Which title do you prefer, Philip? They're no respecter of persons. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think uh, any parent, uh, any, any father, any father that I know, would find uh, his children, as I find mine, uh, defiant, obstreperous, noisy, deceptive. And so when uh, the title they use for me, which is dad with a long vowel, <laughs> rings through, I might find it uh, annoying and frustrating, and I would much prefer to be called uh, with more uh, deference. But the fact is, you can't extricate, I think, a love from the foibles of the human temperament. And if you're prepared to put up with these, these uh, uh, violent and uh, self-obsessed uh, little creatures, there's no other uh, title that could possibly uh, match it. Philip, it's been great fun to speak with you today. I only wish we could have done it over a glass of whiskey. And I hope that when Australia's drawbridge eventually comes down, you might visit the Lowy Institute in Sydney. In the meantime, Philip Bobbitt, thank you for joining me on the director's chair. Michael, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it immensely. It's lovely to see you, see that you're doing so well. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.